Hey everyone, Louis from Kick the Jukebox here. Just wanted to let you know that what you're listening to is the podcast version of Kick the Jukebox with shorter music clips. If you want to listen to the whole shebang, visit our show page at kpiss.fm. That's K-P-I-S-S dot F-M. Okay, thanks for listening, and bombs away! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louis Perlman, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, my friend Joe Hennes. Say hello, Joe. Hello, Joe. <laughs> oh, boy. That's the joke. We're in for an hour of that. <laughs> no, it's going to be great. Kyle is indisposed. He has a recording session currently. I don't know what that means. Uh, I'm very curious is for he, Kyle to tell me. Is he a professional musician? He, I, I, I mean, I would say no, although perhaps uh, perhaps that's changing for him, wow. and he'll tell me about it. Good for him. I know. I mean, he does a lot of great comedy songs. Oh, there's four people listening. Hello to the four people listening. Hello. I think one of them's me. Oh, <laughs> great. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hello back to you, Louie. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm a little I'm a little schnuffly today. I'm getting over a cold. My apologies, but yeah. So Kyle has a recording session. So here we are. Uh, but we're actually gonna have a really fun show. Joe is uh, an expert on all things Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. So we're going to talk about the Crosby, Stills, and Nash record, the self-titled that came out. Yes. Yeah, like later on in the show. That's a preview for you. Because something that Kyle and I do that I think needs to stop is we pretend like it's a surprise. But really for radio shows, you want to know like what you're getting into for the hour. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, whatever keeps you tuned in while you're in the car, because I assume that's where everyone's listening to this. Yes, yeah. in their cars, yeah, on their drive home. Don't change from the channel the, from to, the the, job. to the easy listening station. Yeah, and I, I always imagine everybody's listening to Kick the Jukebox from like their jobs, like like Spacely Sprockets, you know? Cause <laughs> in I, the future? Ex- yes, because okay. I don't... I don't uh, uh, I don't. I don't live in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so, Joe. Yes, Louis. Uh, oh, I should. I should introduce Joe properly. So, Joe is. Who, who am I? Yeah, Joe. Okay. So, I'll tell you who you are. You are the co-owner and editor in chief of ToughPigs.com. That's right. ToughPigs is the world's greatest Muppet fan site. We talked about it last week on our podcast or on our uh, radio show slash podcast because we covered. Uh, the Harry Belafonte song Turn the World Around One of the greatest songs ever performed Yeah, just a gorgeous song, absolutely So we should have had you on for that one But that's not what happened That's okay, you know what? There's enough Muppet love to go around every single week That's right, every single week yep. uh, And I mean, we're discussing Everybody who we're talking about today is a Muppet So That's <laughs> <laughs> true yeah. Especially David Crosby <laughs> Yes, yeah, exactly <laughs> Yeah, David Crosby who also looks suspiciously like my father Yes, that's Which true. sometimes makes me think that my father is David Crosby And nobody's oh. just nobody's told me Maybe. And he's living in Canada under an alias <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if David Crosby had one too many uh, You know, gun related arrests And he's like, I'm going to get to Canada yeah, exactly. I'm going to change my name I'm going to have a second family <laughs> Yeah, exactly So I, that, which means that my my step siblings, my or my half siblings, would be Melissa Etheridge's children. Oh, that's nice. It is nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely. Anyway, <laughs> so um, uh, yeah. So Joe, what have you been listening to lately? I I've listened to so many weird things. So like for some reason, um, over the past uh year or two, I my, all my tastes have 
completely swayed to bluegrass. I oh, to a lot of bluegrass. Oh it's my! Not, it's not what I'm going to listen to today. But like, thank God, we hate bluegrass. No, I'm kidding. We hate uh, bluegrass on this show. Bluegrass is great. No, bluegrass is great. We love all genres on this show. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I, for, I mean, for my for the longest time, uh, by by which I mean from like junior high up until. I don't know, maybe a decade ago. All I really listened to was classic rock, classic rock, everything. Sure. All I cared about was the old stuff. Um, I, I, I worked for uh, my college radio station at Ohio University, ACRN, the Rock Lobster. Oh yeah, that's right, the Rock Lobster. Yeah, yeah. and uh, named after um, a uh, Devo song, I think. Yeah. Close. Hey oh, <laughs> uh, I so, know the B-52s like I know my mother. Anyway, who was one of the B-52s? Yes, uh, that's right. <laughs> so I, I had the classic rock show on ACRN, mm. um, and so once a week, uh, my friend Toby Fallsgraf and I we had a show called Not Your Parents Music. Yes, and we played a couple of, uh, no, like three hours of uh, of straight up classic rock. Um, straight up classic rock. That's right. Not your parents' music. That's actually kind of how we did it. Great. And, we had a few other shows too. We had um, Faces for Radio, uh-huh. and uh, I also did an entertainment news show. It was a lot of fun, and I, I did a lot of work with the radio station. It was like my big thing. Yeah. So first of all, it's really exciting to be back here doing this now. Yeah, radio is so fun. It is. I know. Is. I love radio, and it's such a specific art form as well. Yeah. And it keeps you on your toes. You yeah. know, like we have a podcast version of this, which will be going out this upcoming Wednesday. And we love the podcast version of this, but this helps us edit ourselves properly and not go off on too many tangents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, not that I just went off on a tangent, but you know. That's okay. Well, speaking <laughs> of tangents, let's get back off of, uh, back on topic. Yeah. It, so you have this you have this history of your taste profile being like older sort of like, you know, um, origins of, of, of rock, like cl- right. origins of classic rock, yes. sort of like probably a lot of 60s, which we're going to talk about yep. later. Which is definitely where we overlap taste-wise. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have a theory. Uh, this may be a bit of a tangent, but I have a theory about um, the history of music mm-hmm. and how, oh, excuse me, the history of, of pop music and, and rock music, where uh, you know everything kind of comes from uh, a shared ancestor, and then with every generation, the genres split and they split and they split and they split. So nowadays, it's really hard to find someone who has the exact same taste as you because there's a million options. Well, yeah, but that's the, also a streaming music yes. problem slash really wonderful thing that's totally. Happened. It's yeah, yeah, it's not a bad thing. It's we we don't have such thing. a shared record collection anymore, right? Uh, but the further back you go, the more taste that you're going to have that overlap with more of your friends, and um, you're, that's also kind of how you're going to find out where you're like what it is about the older stuff that you liked. So, for example, like the things that I like about uh, some of these classic rock songs are the things that kind of delve toward bluegrass or toward maybe even country, even though I'm not really a country fan, toward folk. Whereas someone else might get something that's uh, that goes toward metal or goes towards rap or hip-hop or something like that. So, um, in any case, I, that was a bit of a tangent. But the song that I want to talk about today is this band. I couldn't even tell you how I found them. I don't remember I don't know anyone who's heard of them, although there's probably people listening who have. They're called Matthew and the Atlas. Uh huh. They're a UK-based band. Uh huh. And uh, they have an album called Temple that I'm just completely obsessed with. It came out a couple years ago, but it came out in 2016. And um, as far as I know, they only have a, few, a couple albums, um, and two of those albums are Temple and then an acoustic version of Temple, or sorry, a pared-down version of Temple. Yeah. And what's interesting to me about these songs that are on this album, if you listen to the pared-down version, these songs are so sad and melancholy. Yeah. I want to rip your heart out in a good way. Like, I, I love living in that place when it comes to music. Yeah. Um, I think it's really sweet, and I think it really f- makes me feel a lot of feelings that I really appreciate. 
Um, and, and you're a feeling, feeling guy. I love feelings. You don't hold feelings inside. I don't. You're not a toxic ma- masculine man. I'm not. No, yeah. No. Thank <laughs> Christ. No. Beta male over here. So, <laughs> so, um, so th- uh, this band, uh, th- this song I-, I love. I feel like it, it reminds me, of, I couldn't tell you what, but it reminds me of a lot of things that are kind of popular right now. Uh, this particular song, but then if you go back and listen to the um, to the pared down version on uh, on the other version of this album, um, and you hear how different it is and how sad this song is, I think it really it kind of rips your heart out. Um, so well, the song, let's listen to a little bit of it. Yeah, introduce it for us. Oh yeah, so let's the, hear it. The song and we'll is, talk more about it. Of course, uh, the song is called "On a Midnight Street," mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's it, it's a it's a fun song. Until you start listening to the lyrics. All right, and it's, it's by Matthew and the Atlas on a Midnight Street here on KPIS.FM, the Golden Stream. This is Kick the Jukebox. All right, and that was On a Midnight Street by Matthew and the Atlas. That was really, thank you for bringing that in. You're welcome. Very, very, very cool. So um, what what, draw, what draws you to this? Uh, I like it. I like it. I, I'm, I'm going to talk about it for a little bit, yeah, too. But I want to hear from you first. Oh, from me first? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, definitely. Like I said, it's it's such a weird dichotomy between these the, the two feelings that you, I think that I would get out of this song. Uh, of like this this fast paced um, kind of dancey song. It's got a really good beat. It's got a it's got the friends clap in the background. Oh yeah, the friends yeah. clap. <laughs> that's very funny. I wouldn't totally attribute no. that to <laughs> no, only the friends original. theme song. <laughs> but here's the thing: if I say the friends clap, you know exactly what I'm talking. Yeah, about. that yes. it's it's ingrained in our yeah in our yes. like, sort of cultural consciousnesses. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, I, I mean, you can definitely take what you want out of the lyrics, but I, the, I read yeah, one. Yeah, well, we'll talk about the lyrics. Oh my. Yeah, but the like lyrics I, are dark. I read one uh, review. I'm, re- I'm looking at it right now where the this person um, says that they're that the song's about a new father with the concern of long-term effects of global change yeah which, like holy crap that is heavy it's yeah like it's this, it's it's a very modern it's yeah very modern concerns it makes like the concerns of 60s protest songs seem myopic right it's like those those songwriters were writing about the um what was going on you know in a conflict between you know United States and Vietnam, like you know, they're they're you know, like a country conflict. Yeah, and it felt huge and insurmountable. And this guy's literally talking about, I want my daughter to grow up and it not being the end of the world. Yeah, well, you know? and, and it's also like uh, there's so many songs, and especially nowadays, like 2019, like we have so many fears about what's going on right now in the world. Yeah, it's very immediate. And I think that right. has to do with smartphone culture as well. Yes, this song's but, from 2016. Yes, just, but this that means it's one of the most modern things that we bring on. To, we've brought on to this show which mm. is great oh that's interesting yeah well but then what's interesting about this song is it's so much more about the fear of the future it's so much more about like like what is going to happen like we're fine right now but like what is just a few years away for me or for my kids or for the the next couple of generations like that's some scary crap yeah and all set to this i would say very like 80s radio yeah. like springsteeny backbeat yes you know like it feels almost like it owes some of its DNA to something like Born to Run, you know, uh, but uh, with with this idea that's just so much uh, so much, I'd say more um, sort of um, overwhelming yeah. and uh, more um, uh, 
existential than what we're used to with this sort of ballady song yeah. with friends claps in the background. Right. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned Springsteen because I definitely see myself like when I when I dance the song, I, I picture it as the dancing in the dark dance that Springsteen does. Totally makes sense. Yep, pull, yeah. uh, pull Courtney Cox up on the stage. And yeah. Global warming, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, and, and I think this is a, a trend that happens during particularly dire times societally is this sort of wish to, you know, be thinking about what's going on in the world, but to be dancing while you're doing it. Yeah. Like, to me, this is very similar to the disco era, mm. uh, which the disco era actually resulted in a lot of very, very thinky music, although it's not attributed to that, uh, while it was sort of felt like the world was on fire and everybody was, like, dancing through it. And I think right. that this is so similar to that now, it, you it know, is and, and it this isn't. sort of song. Well, like, where I want to disagree with you, though, is I, th- I, think, you're, I think you're totally right, yeah. except for the idea that, um, like, we're dancing, we're, we're fiddling while Rome is burning. Instead, I, I see it more like, look, we can be staring at our phones and our Twitter feeds and see all this horrible crap that's going down in the world and let it get us down or let us, like, you know, going toward guerrilla warfare or whatever it is uh or we can continue our lives because that's the only way that we're going to absolutely actually keep our sanity well dancing is active and looking at your phone is passive you know music music gets into your bones and a song like this can be looked at as a call to action and something that has a beat like this that gets you moving could get you moving in the right direction for something to happen yeah, you know, in in the positive, uh, you know, for ensuring that the world that the, your daughter, you know, that's mentioned in the song, not your daughter, Joe. Joe doesn't have. I'm Joe's daughter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that just like that our, you know, our children will be safe, which is such a primal urge, you know, to keep keep our keep keep our young ones safe when we can't really guarantee that currently. Well, and then like compare that to uh, to the other version of the song, which we're not listening to at the moment, but it, it's, yeah, it's acoustic so, and melancholy. Yeah. It's, it's so much sadder and it's so like, like we're, it makes me feel like we're lying on the couch or lying in a ditch singing the same song. Yeah. Of, like this is hopeless. Yeah. And like, wow, what a difference a tone makes. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. What a difference a tone makes. And like, and uh, that uh, sometimes the packaging that songs come in can be deceiving as to what they're really saying. That's right. Yeah. And th- to segue, I'll segue into my song because that's a perfect segue because my song is a candy wrapper and wrapped inside that candy wrapper is more candy. Uh, <laughs> it's yes. not necessarily the the uh, the darkest song we've ever done on this podcast uh, slash radio show. But this is by a great... Um, punk band from the you know um early 80s called red cross spelled r-e-d-d-k-r-o-s-s who were from la oh, that's my wi-fi password <laughs> it's not your wi-fi password I, I'll, I'll do your wi-fi password over the air no i won't um, <laughs> but yeah but um uh, Red Cross, uh, they're interesting. So they were founded by uh, two brothers, Jeff and Steve McDonald. And they initially just named themselves Red Cross, like the name of the charitable organization. But then they got in trouble for that. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. But they, they were always known. And they, their first uh, show, just to sort of show the roots they were coming from, L.A. Band, they opened for Black Flag. That was their first show. So that makes sense, right? But... Uh, They were always known to be a little more sort of pop culture obsessed. And the term Red Cross apparently 
is a reference to the cross masturbation scene in The Exorcist. Does that make sense? Yes. Totally. Yes. So Red Cross. Yeah. But they had a, a real love of a lot of the same pop culture that I do. And I've already done an entire episode on Joey Levine, the father of 60s bubblegum music. So for me to bring in this song is a little excessive. But hey, we're going to listen to it anyway because I think it's worth talking about. This is Bubblegum Factory from 1990 by Red Cross. And during this bridge, I'm taking it out. Okay, so... <laughs> so did you bring enough for the whole class, Louie? Did I bring enough bubble gum yes. for the whole class? Well, what do you think? Was that enough gum for you? That was, that was, that was plenty of gum. That was you. plenty of gum. Yes. I know. What a yummy, yummy, chewy, chewy, sugary, sugary song. Yeah. So these guys, uh, I think they get it. Um, I think. <laughs> Wait, that, what? What do they get? Yeah, you know, when I say it, it's somewhat elusive. It's an elusive thing. Do they get it? Um, you know, I think that they understand the crossover between kitty culture and, uh, like sort of the darker sides of like '60s, '70s pop culture and where they all intersect. These guys appeared with uh, not David Crosby. We're going to talk about him in a second. With David <laughs> yeah, Crosby on the band, yeah, uh, on the on, mind, on yeah. The mind. yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah David Crosby did not play on this. Surprise! <laughs> but Sofia Coppola is on the album cover, naked, wearing a mask. Oh my! For this yeah. album, yeah, which wow. is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, they they appeared with David Cassidy in a movie. They had Danny Bonaducci sing a song with them. They have covered uh, this Brady Bunch song, Sunshine Day. Oh, yeah. And what they understand is that all it takes is a little tweak and all that music is inherently uh, uh, very punky, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and these guys obviously don't have as hard of an edge as like some of the other bands that we've covered from that L.A. scene that like Kyle and I are very interested in. Like we did a... Um, a circle jerk song recently, um, which is really interesting. Like they're they're a very interesting band. Um, uh, and actually, th these guys have played with um, Pat uh, Pat Smear from that band. Um, yeah, <laughs> and uh, the other thing about these guys that I kind of love is that they are like this is the lesser known project. They're like trophy husbands. <laughs> Because uh, one of them, uh, Jeff McDonald, is married to Charlotte Caffey from the Go-Go's. Oh, really? Which makes a lot of sense. And then Steve McDonald is married to Anna Waronker from That Dog. I don't know. I don't know that. That one. dog. They were a very a popular band from the '90s. Oh, that's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were they were quite popular though, like an alternative band in the '90s. Sure, yeah. And they have a project together that I don't remember the name of, but the four of them have a project, like a side project together as well. But that's what I mean when I say they get it. You know, they understand where all this culture intersects and why it, it's all related to each other. And, you know, and I've talked about this on the show before, but why there's stuff that's cool. Uh, people think that there's stuff that's cool, stuff that's not cool. And actually, uh, here's a secret. Everything's cool. <laughs> you know, also these guys, I think for us, for us to be talking about, because we're sort of such 
pop culture obsessives in our own way. I feel like they're an interesting band because like I think people took them a little less seriously. They did ha- they do have a lot of fans specifically in LA, but people take them a little less seriously because they are pretty focused on this sort of like on this world of pop culture, you know. Um yeah. one of their albums is called Show World. I need to look into this more, but I'm pretty sure it's named after the Peep Show complex uh, that's right off of Times Square, that used to be right off of Times Square, where I used to do comedy shows at a small comedy theater that was above Show World right when I moved here. Oh, wow. And it was this great intersection of like geeky improv comedy with like, you know, like classic 70s sleaze. Yeah. You know, and it's maybe part about how I developed my sort of artistic voice in certain ways. And uh, I definitely like feel like they align with a band like this, you know. So I've just got into Red Cross, and I'm really happy to learn more about them and really explore their catalog. And I thought I'd bring in specifically Bubblegum Factory because it's a very kick the jukeboxy song. Well, what I like about it is it could very easily be a, a parody of something. Like, well, definitely there's an element to it yeah. that feels well, like they're making fun of this a little bit. Yeah, well, it's not completely sincere. It's, but neither was bubblegum music to begin with. So, right. yeah, I mean, it's definitely like it's it's not quite over the top, which is good. It's a good thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of restrained. It's very right. sweet. Well, because it's pardon sin- the pun, it makes it sincere. It yes. makes it like no, we we actually want to write a song about a bubblegum factory. We're, we're like we want to play a song that it's just gonna like make you think about candy. It's gonna make you feel good. I want to see where love gets made. Oh my god! Yeah. Like that's the line in the chorus. Yeah, take me on down to the bubblegum factory. I want to see where love gets made. Yeah, which the first time I heard it, you know, made me cry. Well, and that's also but like the joke. I, that I m- cry during Will Smith movie trailers. So whatever. <laughs> this is a joke that my wife and I made when we we went to the um, Ben and Jerry's factory in Vermont. Of like, yeah, like well, it was more about like let's see where our bad decisions come from. But totally. <laughs> but it's also like this is where our happiness is. Like it's an That's ice cream right. factory. That sounds awesome. Yeah, let's go visit the ice cream factory. Yeah, absolutely. Take me on down to the bubblegum factory. Exactly. Yeah, and what kind of bubblegum factory are they talking about? Perhaps a, a music recording studio. Ooh. Oh, I know. Really deep. We're getting really deep here on Kick the Jukebox. It's too deep. I don't think the song is that deep. I think it's like let's actually just sing a song about bubblegum. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, well, you know, someone else has the nuance in some other song. That's not well, what this is. Well, a lot of other bubblegum songs are referenced on this song. So. Yes. No. I'm. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm. I'm. Honestly, I don't know what they were thinking at the time i just like thinking about like you know what sometimes a rose is just a rose this is true sometimes a rose is just a rose but i think we're gonna get into a band that really does write a lot wait can i also can i just of course correct myself because i realize that uh, because someone is gonna call me out on the fact that i just mix my metaphors (laughs) which i do all the time because it's a rose is a rose is a rose and it's a, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. That's right. I should have said sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. What you should have said is a cigar is a cigar is a cigar. Yes, I should have. <laughs> so, okay. So we're going to get into this Crosby, uh, Stills, and Nash self-titled record. Super excited for this. We have it here on vinyl, Whoa, baby. old school. I know. Hopefully it'll work properly this time as opposed to our uh, Zombies uh, episode where I like forgot how to play a record, which was really what not a, completely not embarrassing. You're such a millennial. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what's what's this? Anyway, um, but I want to start this because, Joe, you have like a really deep love for these guys. Yes. And and I'm really happy that we get to sit and talk about them for a little while today. So I'd love to ask you, wh- what do you love about these guys? Why do you, you have a connection with them? Oh, that's such a good question. There's so many answers I could give you. I mean, the big the history part of it is, you know, I grew up on classic rock as a young human being. And um, like we basically, my dad had the, the oldies station on 24 seven. 
and um, he is still is a huge Beatles fan, just like most people. Yeah. And that was like, I remember growing up, like, that was his band. And I remember thinking, like, I want my band. What is the band that I, whenever I hear a song on the radio, that's what I want. And uh, I remember hearing Crosby, Hills, and Nash. And normally, um, and how old were you? Ooh, I would have been probably, like, 12-ish Okay, so you're in the stage where you're, like, developing sort of a sense of taste. Right. Like, this isn't, like, a five-year-old being, like... I want this to be right. my band. This is like someone who's like, I want to figure out what music I like right. and who I am in the world right. and how I fit. Right, because up until that point, the only music that I ever listened to, literally, my tape collection was Muppet music sure, and Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah, and, and, and Weird it. Al, I would say, ends, ends up being a gateway for a lot of kids yes. into a lot of different genres. And, totally. And the Muppets, to a lesser extent, just because they're a little less ubiquitous mm-hmm. in like record collections, but obviously I think we have a pretty good knowledge base because of our love of the Muppets, like our shared love of the Muppets. That's very, very true. Yeah. Um, although as far as I know, I don't think they ever covered a Crosby, Stills, and Nash song. Which no, is but they did cover some Buffalo Springfield. They did a little bit of Buffalo Springfield. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's the only connection I can think of. Yeah. They did, they did um, For What It's Worth on the Muppet Show. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I remember at the time, I remember going to my dad and being like, I think I want to learn more about Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which would have been rare for me to say something like that to him and was he excited and about that he was and I said what albums should I get and he said only get the first two albums and yeah I specifically saying yeah. the only ones that matter are the first two albums so I went out got the first two albums I was obsessed with them and then I was like well he's got to be wrong yeah there's got to be more out there mm-hmm. and event- like over the next few years I bought all of the Crosby Stills and Nash albums that existed and um you know he he's he's right in the sense that those first two albums are the only two like where it's just solid this is yeah. amazing music you know most of these songs yeah um but I will say, on every other album that they put out, there are at least a few gems that are just spectacular. Yeah. And there's a couple albums that I think are almost as good as these two, uh, you know, with a couple of exceptions. Uh, on yeah, the with albums. like maybe some weaker tracks. Right. Or yeah. It's just like they're just spectacular. You just don't know any of the songs. Sure. You just got to give it a chance. And you got to let go of the fact that like, it doesn't really sound like they made it in 1969 because, you know, that will never happen again. Yeah. So, um,. What I like about them, you know, they're often credited with being one of the first supergroups, and mm-hmm. I think that the important thing that that you and I were talking about earlier today is about the idea that, like, nowadays when we hear about supergroups, um, the like it, it seems like the people involved don't really know how to combine their flavors. Yeah, uh, a good example is I recently listened to the Highwaymen. Uh huh. Do you know the Highwaymen? Who is that again? That was Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, uh-huh. Chris Christopherson. Uh huh. Uh, there, there's two other guys in there. I'm drawing a blank on who it was, but it was like these guys had very like even though they were all came from the same genre. They uh they had very different styles, and when yeah. they sang together, it sounded bad. And like some of the songs are really fun, but like you can't just have Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson sing together. They have very different styles. One yeah. does bravado, one doesn't. One's really low, one's a little bit higher. Like it just they don't they don't mesh. Yeah, it's but, it's one of the reasons why they're like individual recording artists. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, they're all solo artists. Yeah. Whereas these guys, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, all came from three different bands where mm-hmm. they were one member of a larger group. Yeah, and just for our listeners that might not know, go through what bands they were in because they had a really uh, yeah. incredible pedigree before they started Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Totally. So David Crosby. Was uh, was one of the birds. Yeah, Graham Nash, and, and we actually covered the birds recently. Um, we talked about Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Oh yeah, which happened right after. 
David Crosby left. Right. Uh, and they and then um, Jim Parsons came into the birds and gave him more of a right. Not Jim Parsons. Oh, my God. I don't know his name. Graham Parsons. Graham Parsons. There Sorry. Is. Jim Parsons is. Yeah, he's on the Big Bang Theory. That's right. Oh, my God. Yeah. He's the Bazinga guy. And as a, I'll say it for the second uh, radio show in a row, excuse me while I walk into the river. <laughs> no. Um, Graham Parsons joined uh, and um, gave them more of a country sound. And we, we talked right. about that. So if you want to learn about that, that was uh, two episodes ago. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, so he was with the birds. Uh, uh, Graham Nash was with the Hollies. Uh-huh. And... Um, uh, Stephen Stills was with Buffalo Springfield, also with Neil Young, who would join the band later on. Yes, and the Hollies, what was their big hit? Uh, bus Stop? Was yes, the Bus one? Stop. Mm, 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 yep. Much yep. more straight ahead. And they, straight they ahead did rock. have a You could tell by hits. the way I sang it, right? Yeah. Well, they had a couple hits after Graham Nash left as well. Yeah. Like, uh, the uh, Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress. I'm not getting that title wrong. <laughs> title, title right. That's Jim uh, Parsons saying yeah, that. Jim, yeah, Jim Parsons <laughs> Uh, but like the thing is, is that all three of them kind of felt stifled by being in these in these bands, yeah. Because they were with personalities that were like, no, 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 we we are on this track to fame, yeah. We're having a lot of fame, yeah. Like you don't start to deviate, you don't start to experiment at that point, which is, yeah, you know, not really necessarily true. It, it also is a is a classic '60s story, yes. And it's somewhat cautionary, yeah. Uh, but I mean, this happened to so many musicians that wanted to. Uh, you know, start experimenting with more, uh, you know, sounds from other places in the world, um, different types of songwriting structures and techniques. And like, it just reminds me of uh, Mike Love specifically telling Brian Wilson, you know, you really should just stick to writing songs about cars and girls because that's, or cars and surfing right? and, and love songs because that's what sells. And Brian Wilson, you know, just really pushed to change, but it led to a lot of um, quite uh, uncommercial choices that Brian Wilson made that was right. very hard on the rest of that band. Well, and I think the, yeah. the thing is, uh, you know, I, ha- I hate so much to say the sentence I'm about to say. In Mike Love's defense, <laughs> <laughs> you are off the show. I'll just walk get out of this RV. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, no, so, but, but seriously though, like we I, don't I, defend Mike Love for a lot of, uh, uh, on Kick the Jukebox. <laughs> for a lot of no, but for a lot of musicians, like music is a business, and yes. especially when you look at like specifically the Hollies, and they come out of the British Invasion, yep. where like these bands were not here to make waves; they were here to sell albums. Absolutely, and um, any of like it's impossible yeah. at the time in the moment to recognize genius well yeah and it, it takes t- it's very hard to be ahead of your time yeah it's very hard and uh, you know it's very hard to make money and be ahead of your time and like this uh throws back to just our last episode that was about the zombies the zombies in between their two albums hadn't had a hit in like four and a half years which in uh you know rock and roll time is basically eons and eons right and it's because they wanted to experiment with more jazz forms you know very very similarly but now these are the artists that we're really talking about like i don't think pretty much any any sort of music critics the hollies had some really wonderful hits Maybe Buffalo Springfield, we cover a full album, but like the Hollies, we wouldn't cover a full album. No, you cover a greatest hits. Yeah, movie for yeah. Sure, or yeah. or cover some of the really good singles. Yeah, which, which, which they had many. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so uh, but what's interesting to me is like so these are three artists who had the only thing they had in common was that they were um, playing music at the same time, play at the yes. same era, and they came together with three. Now we we look back at those three bands and like they have a lot of similarities now, but I think at the time. 
they were pretty different from each other. B- Buffalo Springfield and birds probably had a lot more in common than either. Yeah, of the kind Hollies. of those folk origins, right? But still, yeah, different. Yeah, they're very different, and so for them to come together and not only say, "Hey, these three voices," by which I mean not their singing voices, but their their you know mentality, like these three voices actually sound really good together, mm-hmm. and these three personalities work well together. They can actually build an album together, mm-hmm. and let's try it and see what happens. And suddenly, you've got a sound that you've never really heard before. And that when you compare them to those three original bands, they're like, well, those guys are garbage. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's just something new came out of their brains. Exactly. Out of the three brains. And they've said before that they were always sort of trying to be playful and strange. Like, I've read interviews with them where they've said that. And it's so funny because I look at Crosby, Stills, and Nash really kind of as being the establishment. And not in a bad way, but just like... I think of them as like being such classic rock radio staples. And then I forget about what that rock landscape looked like before they came on the scene and released this specific record and how much it really changed the way that people wrote songs and the way people recorded songs and the way people sang songs. Right. And they paved the way for the 70s. They really did with this record. I agree. Well, it's also like, think about where, where they were. So they were recording in 68. They, were, they released the album in 69. Yeah. And the Beatles had been hot for, you know, most of the decade. Yeah. And they were on their way out. Yes. They were just about to break up. Yeah. And, um... You know, I think most of what was going on in rock music at that time was, yeah, there was a lot of the commercial stuff and there was a, like a lot of the like uh, that that Beatles inspired rock, like, you know, the Who and Rolling Stones and whatever. But these guys were kind of saying, like, we can create something that's new, but also super familiar at the same time. And yeah. Let's just get three guitars and just like like knock something out of the park. Yeah. Play something. Let, let's write and play stuff that has an emotional core and let the music follow yeah. the content the, the the emotional content of the lyric writing and, and yep. of the harmonies. Well and like following up on why the, the those three bands had so much success. You know, the Hollies with the commercial stuff from the British invasion and the birds from all the Bob Dylan influence yeah. and then all the folk influence from uh, from Buffalo Springfield and like this like super interesting like if you listen to some Buffalo Springfield, I think that's the band that probably had the most influence on what Crosby, Stills, and Nash would have. Because, sure. Because if you listen to the songwriting, I think a lot of that has to do with Stephen Sills and, and um, Neil Young having that kind of influence. Yeah, like more, sort more, of that songwriting cloud on both projects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like more influence on that band than the other than Crosby or Nash had on that. Well, on that note, why don't we listen to our first track? I would love Stephen that. Stills, uh, he's, uh, he, blah, 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 uh, <laughs> he wrote this. Sure but is. this isn't one of the most well-known songs from the album, which I think is great. Yeah. It's called You Don't Have to Cry, and it's Joe's Pick. I love this song. Joe's Pick. All right, here it is. You Don't Have to Cry. Then kick the jukebox on kpiss.fm, the golden stream. Okay, there's that song. You don't have to cry. <laughs> Coming in a little quiet. I hope everybody could hear that properly. Like, I think the levels were a little quiet on that. I feel like our record player is just, it's its not quite where it should be 
sure, level blame, wise. Blame the record player. I do. Well, it happened with the Zombies record too, but it's really pretty and it's nice to hear it on vinyl. So I hope everybody appreciated that. Anyway, why do you choose this one? You love this song. I do love this song. And this is a little bit of a lesser known track. So talk talk about while. Uh, talk about while I queue up the next song. Sure. Okay. Talk about why. So I think the first thing is is to talk about the, is the history of this song. It was actually the first song that Crosby, Stills, and Nash sang together. Um, there's a differing of opinion. Yeah, how did they meet? So What's their origin story? There's actually a little bit of a differing opinion about how they met or where they met, really. So they met at a party. We know that for sure. Um, most likely it was at Mama Cass's house, at Cass Elliott's house. Um, there are... Like some people think it was at Joni Mitchell's house, but it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Sure. Um, it could have been anywhere. Uh, so basically, what happened was they're at this party. There's all these famous musicians at this party, and um, uh, Stephen Stills and and David Crosby, who hadn't met before, uh, had been Stephen Stills had written this song, and uh, David Crosby knew the song, and they were like, "Hey, everyone, gather around, uh, listen to this," and they play "You Don't Have to Cry." Now uh -huh. Graham Nash is in the room. And he listens to it, and he goes, God, that's a really great song. He says, would you mind singing again? And I don't think that was that abnormal for these musicians. Sure. So like, oh, yeah, you want to hear it again? Great. Because yeah. as you can tell, it's a really short song. Yeah, they were listening closely to stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So they play it again, and then Graham Nash says, this is going to sound crazy. Can you play it one more time? And they're like, dude, come on. They're like, what drugs are you on? And yes. he's like, all of them. Yes, I'm Graham Nash. Yeah, that's my that's impression of him. All of them. Uh, <laughs> So Graham, so feed they, me them. So they play the song a third time, and at this point, Graham Nash has now heard it twice, and he already because it's pretty short. He memorized the lyrics, and he comes in with a third harmony above them. Oh! And everyone in the room goes, "Holy crap! What was that?" Yeah. Like suddenly they've got this amazing three-part harmony between yeah, this, these this the three blend. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and they they're known for having such a unique blend. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Graham Nash likes to talk about how no one else at the time was doing three-part harmonies in, in that same way, and I don't think that's necessarily true. But I don't think anyone was doing it consistently across the board like they do. Yeah. So, um, so yes, yeah, so they they that. That was kind of the the start of them going like, "Hey, wait, do we have something here?" And um, I think keep the, talking. The I'm just, I'm no, just no, yeah, fixing no. the record. You do your thing. I think I think the record's cute. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's live radio. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. We'll fix it in post. So um, I won't, honey. <laughs> the song, the song itself. It, it's such a like I say, it's a simple, short song with a beautiful harmony that I think really sets the stage for what Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Nash would make, would do for that album mm. and really for their entire career. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I don't know. It's just like a really, I think it's a sweet song. Um, I think it says a lot. I think, uh, I think it's also interesting to me that, you know, uh, like I said, uh, Stephen Stills wrote the song and it was almost like he was writing a song that could only be done. This was not a song that he could do solo. This is a song that could only be done with this three-part harmony, with, with two partners. And that itself, in itself, sets the stage for how they were going to be writing songs as a trio or as a quartet later when, when um, Neil Young came on. Because... When you like, for me, like I know, I know their their library really well for their their band stuff and their solo stuff, and the way that each of those three guys write songs is completely different that, between when they write for their solo albums and when they write for the band. Yeah, 
And this is, I think, a prime example of like, yeah, maybe maybe Stills originally wrote it for him to sing by itself by himself. But like, really, this was it was going to be a nothing song without the other two guys. Yeah. Yeah. They make each other better. And they all, of course, acknowledge that and realize that about each other. Yeah. Despite the fact that they were primarily individual songwriters. Yeah. Uh, I, I also appreciate the fact that this song we, we cut right before the the mid like a couple seconds before the midpoint. Yeah. But the song literally there's a, a moment right in the middle of the song where it sounds like Stephen Stills taps on his guitar. It's a little pop. Interesting. And it does the exact same thing over again. So like it's not like a normal you know verse chorus verse type of song. It's we are singing a song. It's a minute and fifteen seconds. We tap the guitar and then we sing the exact same song again for a minute and fifteen seconds. <sighs> Yeah. Like, who does that? Well, they, I mean, uh, we'll get into this, particularly with the last track we're going to talk about, which is Judy Blue Eyes. Yes, which is the the polar opposite. So, but it's just that they really had some very interesting ideas as to how a song should be structured. But in the meantime, I want to, I want to play a little bit of, and then we'll talk about it. I wanted to listen to Helplessly Hoping. Because it's great. Oh, this is one of my all-time favorite songs. And, and I would argue that actually there's a lot of reasons why this song shouldn't be very good, and then it ends up being very good. Yes. So let's listen to some of Helplessly Hoping here on Kick the Jukebox on kpiss.fm. This is Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Did he hear a goodbye? Or even hello? Okay, okay, here we go. We're going to talk about this lovely song. It's very nice. Okay, so (laughs) I want to say here that I feel like the alliterative lyrics, you know, like I just wrote one down just to read out loud in case you didn't catch it while you were listening to the song. Wordlessly watching... He waits by the window and wonders. Feel like in the hands of less competent musicians, this could really be viewed as and like interpreted as like kind of overly precious. Do you know what I mean by this? I do, yeah. Like there's sort of an element to it that's like, isn't this impressive? Isn't there an introspectiveness to this? But I feel like they get away with it. They do because it because they they find a way to make it work with the rhyme scheme as well. And it's not like they're just saying words that start with the first letter. The, the song's actually still saying something. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. What I like about it, so I'm a huge fan of a not not just a good rhyme scheme, but a good rhyme pattern. Sure. Some of my favorite songs have like a uh, rhymes where like they put the rhyme in the middle of the of the phrase and at the end and yeah, like just the like, crazy things like that. And this one. It kind of goes that extra mile to say, like, oh, we're not only going to be do- having an actual song structure, an actual songwriting scru- structure, but we're going to add in this crazy thing of alliteration, which, like, as we all know, you can't alliterate and rhyme at the same time because that's just saying the same word twice. That's right. So yeah. The fact that they managed to do it and do it so well, this song, this, and also, like, it's such a, a melancholy song. I already said, like, I love those sad songs. Yeah. This one gets me. I love it. I've always loved this song. Yeah. And, and I, I think that. There is a, it's so Stephen Still, Still, Stephen Stills, he um, comp- he played most of the instruments on this uh, yeah, album, so, right? Yeah. yeah. So Stephen Stills, uh, it's kind of fascinating. They um, 
Uh, Crosby and Nash play guitar on a couple of the songs, probably the ones that they wrote. They're playing guitar. But Stephen Stills is playing literally every instrument on this album with the exception of the drums. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, and that, I remember reading about how when this album was a hit and they were because you know if you recall when they played at Woodstock it's just the three of them sitting on stage with their guitars yes. there's no band yeah and so when it was a hit and they're like well we're, now we're going to tour with the album they had to train the band they had to mm-hmm. hire a band uh, I believe um, they got like I don't know some of the guys from Booker T and the MGs to okay because you know that's that's the house band. Yeah, um, totally. But uh, they uh, they had to train a band to like play exactly like Stephen Stills because Stephen Stills can't play every instrument. When no, no, certainly not as much as he wants to. It's, <laughs> it's also like I mean we could talk a bit more about this with Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, but like this album is very much Stephen Stills' album. Yeah, yeah. In terms of sort of the overall direction of it, right? And and just to get back to that confidence, the playing on this is very intentionally relaxed. Yeah. And I think that's one of the main things that lets the song work is that it just has so much breathing room. Mm -hmm. And clearly uh, this song owes a lot to folk music. You can hear the roots sort of embedded into a song like this. The guitar background, the harmonies, um, sort of the uh, like the gentle nature of it. Like it owes more to folk than I would say um, a lot of uh, rock does from the 70s. Or from the late 60s. Sure. But I feel like this sort of sound totally, in a really interesting way, paved the way for what was popular in the 70s on radio. Like, you can draw a direct line from something like this to something just slightly more lush, but just as relaxed, that is, like, Paul Williams writing for The Carpenters. Like, you know, they really took... That was all considered that California sound, which these guys pioneered, and they just took it in a uh, place, you know, a lot of the people who were inspired by this sort of music to a place that was just a little more commercial, a little more digestible for a big audience. That's an interesting concept, especially because this is a song that literally has three voices and one instrument. Sure. There's nothing else to it. As yeah. opposed to like if you listen to a Carpenter song. Yeah, then it's so there's, it's, I mean, uh, there's, complicated in terms of, or it's just, there's well, a lot well, going just, on. It's yeah. just full. It's full. Yeah. And this is not a full song and, and deliberately. Uh, and, um, you know, along that same wavelength, uh, uh, you know the the rhythmic guitaring, uh, guitar plucking, plucking, yeah, plucking. Excuse me. I know these words are so hard to They're say. So today. hard. I got two times. Why are we saying so many words? I don't know. But the rhythmic guitar plucking and the fact that there's got to be such a synchronicity between the three voices means that there's no room for improv- improvisation. There's no room for error, and it's just this very like like it's like a metronome, and it's just gonna hit every single note exactly when that note is supposed to hit. Yeah, which works so well for a song like this. Would not work for, say, like a solo song. Wouldn't work for a song that maybe has, you know, one one additional chorus. Where yeah, like, totally. You don't want to hear the exact same thing. Like, the exact uh-oh, same yeah. Right. <laughs> and especially, like, as these guys, you know, still sing a song like this. They probably still sing this song in every single live appearance they make. And you have to sing it exactly the same way. Yes. Whereas you can't, you, you can definitely, there's other songs where, like, one guy's singing and he can go all the way up or he can scat a little bit or whatever. But this one, there's no... Is there a lot of scatting? I didn't mean to say scat. Live? Okay. No, but yeah, but David Crosby, just, actually. I've, he, seen, I've seen the most several times. Do, do, do. No, but like he'll do, like, here's a song about whales. Really? Oh, yeah. And then he'll start singing the song? Yeah. That's Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a few songs that they do that. I don't like that. It's um. Sometimes it's good, and most times it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. No, no, no. Thank you for breaking that down for me. 
uh, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe the connection that I'm making isn't quite linear, but I feel like there's something in the tone of it and there's something in the intent of it that led to like just five, six years down the road, all that stuff that we associate with like very big mainstream 70s pop. This really paved the way for it. Yeah, and that might be because um, there weren't really many hit songs where um, where they were uh, deliberately like, you know, here's a slow, sad song that it's just going to make you stop and think, you know, like that. That's true. And, and so contemplative. Yeah. That's yeah. the kind of thing. There was a lot more of that once the seventies got into full swing. That is a good point. Oof. Now let's talk about our, our final song. This is what we're going to do. We want you to follow us at kick the Jutebox on Instagram at KTJB podcast on Twitter and on Facebook, please follow us. We'll be back in two weeks with another thrilling episode of Kick the Jukebox. It will be so exciting, I can't even tell you. Will I be back? Um, If you want to be back, Joe, you can totally <laughs> no, come back and hang fine. out with us. Kyle can come back. Yeah, I think we're going to cover a new Order record, um, which I think is going to be really, really fun. Um, oh, did they make a new Order record? No, just... A new order record. I didn't say a new new order record. Oh, my the last God. the last uh, new order record was excellent. It was just from a few years ago, like two three years ago. It was Did ex- you very good. Order the new new order. Record? Oh my gosh! Oh no! You're gonna make my head explode. Anyway, yeah, but please follow us. Um, and you know, thanks for everybody that's been listening and for that's been giving us feedback. And you know, we love doing this show. And please, you know, share the show with your friends. Uh, word of mouth is definitely the best advertising for a little music crit show like this. So, uh, Joe, let's talk about Judy Blue Eyes. Yeah, sweet Judy Blue Eyes. <laughs> sweet Judy Blue Eyes. So Sorry. A very, very brief history of this song was uh, Stephen Stills wrote this after he broke up with Judy Collins. Yeah, she left him for. I just learned this. He, she left him. Uh, she was in a play with Stacy Keach. Yes, <laughs> and Stacy Keach was a, a famous character actor. You would, if you Google him, you will definitely recognize him. And uh, uh, he was just distraught and wrote this song. And what's good to keep in mind is just a few years later, um, he and, and Judy Collins would would reunite just as friends. Yeah, and to to this day, they just like a year or so ago recorded a new album together. It's very it's, cool, it's fantastic. It's it's, it's a, nice to know people can mend the fences, right? And, well, especially like you know, they do are new projects. They're in the same world together. This this folk world, yeah. Like, they can't escape each other. So thank thank goodness, or else they would have gone crazy. Um, so he wrote this for her, and um, what's interesting is that he he says that he wrote four beginnings of songs. Yeah, and um, he didn't know how to finish them, and so when he just pasted them together and added Crosby and Nash, then suddenly it turned into something amazing. It became a sweet. It became a sweet. It's it's a very strange, right? It's, it's gorgeous, right? It feels like all these different songs put together. Yeah, deliberately. There's a lot yeah. of different influences for sure. There's definitely sort of an old school, I'd say like doo-wop influence on this. A little bit, yeah. There's a there's definitely a Spanish music influence on yep. this. Yep. Uh, what else would you say? Um, uh, uh, well, there's definitely like there's there's something that's a little faster paced, and then it goes down to a ballad. Yes. Um, yeah. What's also interesting is when Kyle hates ballads, by the way, so I'm glad he's not here. <laughs> uh, but then, like, what's also interesting, and I've seen him play this song live a few times, and uh, you forget that because the songs are so different that they require, let's say, for example, different instruments. Yeah. So he swaps out guitars three to four times, probably three times throughout the song. Sure. um, Because those guitars need to be tuned completely differently. Mm -hmm. And it just goes to show between that and the fact that when you listen to this and you, like, when you listen and you hear all these different instruments in the background, 
aside from the drums, Steven Sills is playing every single one. Yeah, and, and it just segues together like it feels right. like a bunch of dudes and sitting around a campfire. What a talent. Maybe some ladies too, but this does the song does feel a little dude Yes, totally. Yeah. <laughs> but like what a talent he is that Oh like, yeah. He's like I don't think Steven Sills really gets enough credit in this world uh that you know he can do something like this oh yeah so um but yeah this song is just like it oh and then the other thing i want to say about the song yeah yeah is uh so their follow-up album to this is deja vu which they did with neil young yes and they apparently recorded most of the album and they were like it's great but it's not as good as the original why would you do a follow-up it's not if it's not as good as the original and stills was like well that's because we can't do sweet judy blue eyes again it's yeah. impossible he's like you, you only do that once uh, yeah he's like i wrote you know four songs then put them together and they were like well we need something and he said okay give me a night let me come up with something he went home and he thought about sweet judy blue eyes and he ended up writing carry on which is almost as good as this song and it's the same thing where it sounds like it's four different songs yeah Stephen stills did everything in this song he wrote the whole thing even though it sounds like it's something that's that's both these songs sound like they were written uh by the entire super group yeah, deliberately. I feel yeah. like like he wrote something that like this could be a Crosby song. Yeah, and song I want to write song. something that favors David Crosby's voice. Yes. I want to you know favor something that uh, you know uh, or write something that sounds really good on Graham Nash. Yeah, exactly. That's so cool. Yeah, what a what an amazing song this is. Um, and, and, and for what, a, what for an interesting a... group of uh, dudes yes. <laughs> who were in this band. Such a weird weird group. <laughs> yeah, it's such a weird group of dudes. Yeah. So this has been so fun, Joe. Thank you so much for having me, Louis. Yeah. I had a blast. I've loved this where could people find you on social media and stuff well, and on the internet and you know and creative stuff coming up for you uh well the the place where you can see most of what i do is toughpigs.com and it's all muppet content all... and if you need some sunshine in your day yes you know take me down to the muppet factory That's right. i want to see where fleece is flocked <laughs> Oh uh, boy! But if you, yeah, that was a deep one. <laughs> it was so awful. <laughs> if you like Muppets at all, even a little bit, we are the best Muppet fan site on the internet. Yeah, and I write a bunch for you, you guys. Do, Louis. I just wrote a really fun piece that actually fans of this podcast would be interested in. Um, it, that was primarily really about Buffy St. Marie. Yeah. But, but about her time on Sesame Street. Yes. So yeah, we are go, go on to that site. We have several ongoing projects, one of which is for fi- Sesame Street's 50th anniversary. We're doing an article about each season of Sesame Street once per week for 50 weeks. Uh, we're also in the middle of doing a big project. We're reviewing every episode of the Muppet Show exactly 40 years after it aired. So we're in the middle of season three right now. And we also have daily news articles and art spotlights and interviews and things like that. Podcast, We have a podcast as well. Yeah, um, where it covers the Muppet movie. Yes. I've been a guest on that podcast. Yeah, actually, it's great. we are just starting our the second season of that. It's going to be about the great Muppet caper. Exactly. Which is a whole other Muppet movie. A whole other Muppet movie. <laughs> so, uh, we... Ladies, Joe is married. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, Beta men, male. I so... am not. You can you can find all that stuff on Twitter and Facebook and et cetera, et cetera, at Tough Pigs, T-O-U-G-H-P-I-G-S. Um, for me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Hennis, on Instagram at Tough Pigs Joe. Uh, that's pretty much yeah, it. Yeah, Joe's a really funny tweeter. He deserves more followers Thank on Twitter, you. actually. All right, on that note, we're going to play through all of seven minutes of Judy Blue Eyes. We're going to go, so we're going to, um, you know, hear a little bit of it. A little more of it if you're listening live on kpis.fm. And if you're not, you'll hear a shorter version, but you'll get a sense of why this song is so amazing. And we're going to sign off on that. Uh, see you around like a record, jukeheads. <laughs> this has been <laughs> Kick the Jukebox.
Bots is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time.